This is a HeadGum Podcast. Craig, I've been looking at this internet. I've been looking into this internet thing. You heard about this? I have heard of the internet, the tubes, the future, the highway. Hit me, mm-hmm. Daddy, with it. Yeah, I mean, did you know that you could make your own website? You know those professional websites that like comedians and like plumbers and stuff have? You could do one at home. That sounds very intimidating. Is there someone who can help me? There sure is. It's Squarespace. The people at Squarespace have made a website that helps you make websites, possibly even putting themselves out of business in the process. Could Squarespace make a website that was so good at making other websites that it put Squarespace out of business? Hmm. Hmm. Let's think about let's not that one find out because they're sponsoring our show. <laughs> they are sponsoring our show. Things you can do with Squarespace, other than the stuff I just said. You could turn your cool idea into a new website. You can showcase your work. You can blog or publish content. You can promote your physical or online business and so much more. So, so much more. They got beautiful templates that world-class designers made. They made them. Powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online, including yourself, you know. You got analytics, help you grow in real time. Built-in SEO or search engine optimization, as it's called in the biz. Nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace is a website that helps you make websites, like I already said. You should make a website with Squarespace by going to squarespace.com overdue for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace.com overdue. Get that 10% off with the offer code overdue. Squarespace. Circle gets the Squarespace. Woof, Andrew. Books are here. Are you a dog? That's me. Rough, rough. Hmm. Wowf, wowf. Bark, bark. On on track to be the second or third most famous book dog (laughs) that I can think of. I want you to tell me what the other ones are, but first I will say that welcome to That Welcome to Overdue, a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And I am that who am Andrew. Woof woof. What are the other famous book dogs? I mean, Wishbone, obviously. Oh, sure. And then did Mr. Peabody do books or was he just smart? Was he he's probably smart because of books, right? I don't know if Mr. Peabody did books. I was also going to say Cujo. That's a book Cujo's dog. Cujo's a famous dog from a book. Yeah, sure. Yes. I mean, if you're going to do dogs from books like Old Yeller, Shiloh... Uh, the where the red fern grows dogs like all the uh, all the sad dog books. Is dogs. Tintin the dog or the boy in the Tintin books? I think Tintin's a boy. I think mm. Rin. You're thinking of Rin Tintin, I who's am. a canine cop. Who oh, I don't crap. know if he was in books. <laughs> well, we're talking about dog books because I read uh, Top Dog Underdog by Susan Laurie Parks. It's a play, but I am holding a book in my hands that happens to be the script as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and each week on the show, one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. It's a book usually we haven't read before. Um, Andrew, have you heard about this play at all? You're not no, you're not a theaterman, I, so I wasn't sure if you had. I've not. Sure. No. I, I assume that underdog from the cartoon underdog is not the underdog reference in the title. <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, n- nor is the 
one of my former favorite hot dog places that may or may not still exist, Underdogs, which is also very good. Um, Did you know that they closed the Wendy's that was in that bank at like? They did close out Bank Wendy's it's on a Broad Street. Institution. There's a lot of places. Oh, man, shout out to everybody. It's a tough time out there. Yeah. Um, Wendy's are closing. It's really... a local, very local. Man. Like, hey, everyone in Philadelphia who likes Wendy's, we've got bad news for yeah, you. Wow. It's rough out there. Um, mm-hmm. I knew about this play. So we read books that, you know, you should have read by now or maybe an author you should have heard of by now. Um, I feel like I had a copy of this play for a long time. And when we were looking for stuff to do in the November schedule, because we didn't want to do Remember November, we just kind of wanted to take care of some books and, and read some stuff. Well, and just also to schedule an easy month because nobody yes. knew how anything was going to go. We needed some shorter, some shorter material for sure. And I thought I had a copy of this that I bought when we were in college because it had just recently won the Pulitzer. It won the Pulitzer in 2002. Yeah, and it does it just seems like the kind of play that you would just have. Yeah. You would you you nobody it's the kind of play that nobody buys. They just kind of have it around yes. if you're in that in that sort of in the business of show as they say. And I couldn't find a copy, so I had to go get a new one, which is fine cuz now I have a fresh new copy of Top Dog Underdog by Susan Laurie Parks. Nice. Um but what do you know about Miss Parks? We like to talk about the authors here, Andrew. What did you find? I know that she was born in 1963. And she is a playwright, screenwriter, and novelist. And uh, she was the first African-American woman to receive the Pulitzer Prize in drama for Top Dog Underdog, like you yep. said. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also a MacArthur Genius recipient. And I think her most recent play also was... A like a finalist or shortlisted for the yeah, Pulitzer Prize. The um the trilogy Father Comes Home from the Wars, uh one, two, and three was a twenty fifteen finalist. Yeah. And then I think uh, she also yeah. got a Tony for her um Porgy and Bess update as well. She's oh, nice. She's, she's pretty accomplished. Yeah. She also did a, and I always, I'm always fascinated by these these kinds of projects. She did a project called 365 yeah. Days, 365 Plays, where she wrote a play per day for a whole year. And the reason I always like these sorts of of things is because the you know that there is that advice that is given to creative people or like any kind of writer really where you just should try to do something every day and you shouldn't get too like gummed up trying only to do good stuff Mm -hmm. and to set out and say, I'm going to do a play every day, no matter what, like you do create room to create a bunch of poopy garbage, (laughs) but sometimes, you know, there might be, there might be, that might be fertilizer that, other good plays grow out of you know uh-huh it did receive like <laughs> full productions some of which spanned multiple theater companies i think a friend of hers who's a producer like basically built a theater company to do these plays um she said i think i read an interview she started writing them because she won the pulitzer and was like wow theater's really good to me i should say thank you to theater by writing a bunch I of plays <laughs> I mean, maybe she didn't have any. Maybe there's no filler in here. Maybe it's yeah. 365 solid gold rockin' hits. And no she's filler, not... all, all thriller, all yeah. killer. <laughs> um, I also know, just on a personal note, she was born in Fort Knox, Kentucky, to a military family and went to high school in what was then called West Germany. Yeah, among all sorts of places. But yeah, she talks about yeah. the West Germany thing a lot. While her dad was stationed there. And she she had she's talked about how that gave her an opportunity as a as an American black woman to be 
just an outsider in a place in a way that had nothing to do with her color. Like she was not mm. white or black. She was just kind of a foreigner. In she was that, American. In country. Yeah. Yes. Um, she studied under James Baldwin in college. She helped steer her toward being a playwright. Apparently she had had an interest in chemistry earlier. So that seems <laughs> yes. like, a, I guess the chemistry between characters in a play is a, is a way that you can make that knowledge sort of apply cross, cross, uh, functionally i'm just making chemistry noises over here um, oh, okay i thought you were mad and but you're well just making cool chemistry explosion noises. Yes. uh he was teaching like a short story class at mount holyoke she had been reading james baldwin for you know a good portion of her life at that point and i saw she's told pbs that he was like yo your stories are fine but you should probably go write plays and her response was like well theater is like a lot of drama like, and she was not it kidding. Is though. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know actors. Right? I know actors. Ugh, actors. Um, and I've watched. I've watched a number of interviews with her where she she is of a, a lot of playwrights operate this way, and it, it is usually a quality that very good playwrights have. Is she was just like, yeah, I write plays because like I come up with a character and then I can't say no to that character, which I think also serves very good short story writers too. Um, I think those two mediums overlap uh, mm -hmm. significantly. Um, yeah, we talked about Father Comes Home for the Wars. We talked about 365. Uh, uh, I know she worked on screenplays for um, Their Eyes Were Watching God and The Great Debaters. And Native in Son in 2019. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, and so I, I have some other like quotes and things from her. I have some some things from the... New York Times review of both the play itself and the production of it in 2002. Mm. Cool. Um, but I don't know. Maybe those things are better brought up in, in context, or I don't know how you want to handle that stuff. Yeah, I want to hit those in context. I'll just say before we take the break that this play was named number one in a 28... 28th... Top dog! <laughs> I didn't see that coming. That got me. Um, in 2018... The New York Times, uh, the, which is literally the only newspaper. Um, just I don't know if you knew that at home. I mean, um, it's 2020. You're not that far <laughs> oh, off. Oh, I didn't mean... God, I was trying to make a joke. Um, they did an article in 2018 called The Great Work Continues the 25 Best American Plays Since Angels in America. Um, Angels in America came out in 1983 about the AIDS crisis, among other things, and very influential work. And so they put five of their critics together to come up with 25 of the best place since and they put in some rules about like only having it was a lot like that hundred books article that we read a while ago andrew like the pbs great reads or whatever it was oh sure yeah they used the rule where only one work by any playwright can be on there which you know i think in the explainer article that they wrote said that they would have put other lori uh, other susan lori parks plays on there as well um and this was number one which then when they published all the reader comments, there were a bunch of people who were like, why didn't you put her other plays on there, you jerks? That's not the one I would have chosen. Yeah, um, you're supposed to read the directions before you read the list, I guess. Yeah, the, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it's just interesting. And that I remember when that came out, it was a, it was a reminder that I am not as well-versed in her work as I would like to be, which I kind of brought into this episode. Um, and that's a great piece if you are someone who is like somewhat into theater, but you don't 
follow it super closely and you like reading interesting plays, um, that article gives you a pretty good snapshot of what's been going on in the last quarter century, at least stuff that's come through New York. And then the companion articles are like, here's a bunch of other stuff you missed, you jerks, which is good <laughs> too. Um, and that's a good jumping off point too for like, there's a lot of subjectivity in this play, just as much as there's subjectivity in what plays we think are good or, or are the most valuable. So Sure. Um, on that very philosophical note, should we take our break? Yeah, and look then... at you, Mr. Smarty over here. I, I, I know. Sorry. All right, cool. All right, now if if you're ready to if you're ready to put your monocle away, we have to read some ads. Okay, we'll be right back. <laughs> okay. Craig, I have help, but it's not as good as it could be. Is there anything you can help you could do? You, you need help. Some better help. I do need better help. Thanks. Tell me more. Overdue is brought to you this week by BetterHelp, which makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating with them in a safe, private, online environment in under 24 hours. And you can send a message to your counselor at any time. The service is also available for clients worldwide. And there are licensed professional counselors with a broad range of expertise. Uh, our listeners will get 10% off their first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash overdue. Join over a million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, betterhelp.com slash overdue. Craig, which of us is the top dog and which of us is the underdog? Oh, God. Have you thought about that at all? Oh. I know how, what I think. Oh, <laughs> what do no. You think? No. Because I'm worried <laughs> that you're going to say you're the top dog. I mean, of course, because I am. But is that true? Mm, Doesn't I it? I said it. I laid claim to it mm. first, which is a really top dog sort of thing to do, I think. Uh, but maybe you're like the scrappy underdog trying to claim being the top dog. No, I think that's the kind of thing you're trying to do right now by disputing uh, my top dog status. But isn't it maybe like a human, like a like this is how we all live thing, where like sometimes you're the top dog and sometimes I'm the top dog. I mean, well, even if that's true right now in this moment, I am the top dog, <laughs> and good luck. Okay, is I all mean, I have to say to you. <laughs> You're the man now, dog, is what you say. Remember that? That's a good one. Yeah, that's, that's that was the top dog that meme in my top, day. Yeah. Um, so let me read to you this little intro. R rip in peace, Sean Connery. <laughs> oh, man. From, uh, from Parks uh, about where this play came from. In January 1999, I was thinking about a play I'd written seven years earlier called The America Play. In that play's first act, we watch a black man who has fashioned a career for himself. He sits in an arcade impersonating Abraham Lincoln and letting people come and play at shooting him dead, like John Wilkes Booth shot our 16th president in 1865 during a performance fun, at Ford's Theater. Fun game. What a uh -huh. fun game it is. I was thinking about my old play when another black Lincoln impersonator unrelated to the first guy came to mind, a new character for a new play. Um, he would uh, be living with his brother, uh, he would be a former three-card money hustler. His brother would be named Booth. And then she said, My interest in three-card money began one day when my husband Paul and I were walking along Canal Street and saw some guys doing the shell game. 
I was fascinated because while I'd seen the scam before, this time I had someone whispering a a running commentary in my ear, a kind of play-by-play, explaining the ins and outs of the scam, what was going on. Sure enough, the commentator was my husband, (laughs) and turns out (laughs) he had used to throw down cards back in the day. Um, Did you, was it, when you found out what this game was called, did you find it, was the name Three Card Monty? I found out about this game under the name find the lady because you're supposed to find the queen i think when i first learned about this game it was called the shell game mm. i don't think i i think i learned about it as a shell game um, I mean, it is a shell game sure yes uh i did not learn the card version of it first though oh okay 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 okay. like i'm used to the, the shell game being like the like you find the, the find the pebble under the cups yep. or whatever mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but no, I had not learned the card and I've never run three card money personally. I think you would be okay at it. I probably, I don't know if I have the dexterity, the hand dexterity for it. I feel like I would. It's, it's about the, like the hand dexterity, but it's also about like how distracting can you make your face and voice, which I think is your, that's your wheelhouse. Yes. I am the top dog at having a distracting face and voice. That's true. Mm Uh, so we will talk about Three Card Monty because, uh, of course, in this play, that is a big part of these two characters. Uh, we have Lincoln, who is the top dog. That's what it says in the script. <laughs> and we have... <laughs> well, good to establish that up front. We have Booth, a.k.a. Three Card, the underdog. Uh, it takes place here and it takes place now. Um, and I do want to give a shout out to, uh, having not read a Parks script before, she has some formatting stuff that reminds me a little bit of Beckett uh, but other, and other playwrights do this as well. The thing that's most unique to her, she has a thing called a spell, which is like an elongated and heightened pause or rest. And what she does in the script is she just puts the characters' names with no dialogue, just like next to each other. And what this is a place where the figures experience their pure, true, simple state. No action or stage business is necessary. Directors should fill this moment as they best see fit. Um, And I just, I was fascinated reading it. There's a bunch of really good parts where she, in the middle of the dialogue, where other playwrights might fill it with with business to show that the mood has changed or that they've reached some sort of conversational impasse. Mm -hmm. She just puts Lincoln Booth, Lincoln Booth, and you get sort of like a Twitter format. Yeah, they're implying that people are sitting and passing time with sign, but only silence. Yeah, it's just really effective, like kind of line break stuff that that works really well. And I don't know what they were doing in the original productions necessarily, um, but you get the sense that you could do as little or as or as much with it as you want. And that's neat. Um, so, like we've kind of said, that it's two brothers, Lincoln Booth. They live in a rundown, like rooming house. Um, in some city somewhere it's never really explained Mm -hmm. um and lincoln is a former three card money hustler he's given it up um later in the play he tells a story about the people he scammed um or the types of people he would scam and realizing where their money may have been coming from but also one of the guys in his crew got shot by someone that they were scamming um, his friend, you know, his crewmate died and he was like, I'm out, I'm done. Even though yeah. I was one of the best in the game. Mm-hmm. And he takes up a job impersonating Lincoln <laughs> at an arcade. 
uh, arcade in the like you know street fair arcade scenario, not like in a mall arcade next to a Virtua Cop machine. No, or something. I, I get you. I get you. I get you. I get you. Um, I'm glad you specified. Thank you. So right next yeah. to the cruising USA cabinets, dressed right. as Lincoln, and, in, and next to in between the orange Julius and the TCBY. <laughs> yes, um, and the it is they are both black men. They are brothers. Um, and so much is made of the fact that he is a black man wearing white face dressed as Abe Lincoln. And I guess the attraction is that people walk up and they shoot him in the back of the head with a pop gun and then he falls down. Fun. Fun it's, game for everybody. It's not really explained in more detail as to like what, why is this there? Is this a village of presidents you can kill? Like this, that's irrelevant to the to the story of the play, and is more fun to think about outside of the context of reading it, just as like a lark um, okay. to to imagine fleshing out that world. I don't know what other terrible attractions are at that carnival, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he is trying to make an honest living. He is down on his luck. His wife has kicked him out, so he's living with his brother in this crappy apartment that has no running water. They have to go out in the hallway to use a bathroom and all kind of stuff. Um, Booth doesn't have a job. He wants to be a three car money hustler like his brother used to be. He does have a, a girlfriend named Grace that he keeps saying he keeps giving rings to and maybe she'll marry him one day, but she hasn't said yes yet. And he's always boasting. You get the sense that he's always lying like she does exist, sure. but he is always lying about how mm-hmm. good things are going. Um, Booth is, I think, younger by five years. That sounds about right. Um, and like the initial circumstances are interesting because Lincoln, who is the top dog, right? He does still rely on Booth for shelter, even though Lincoln is the one bringing home money uh, once a week. Booth needs that money coming in, and he needs like Lincoln's approval um, to move forward with his life. Uh, and they're named Booth and Lincoln because it was their dad's idea of a joke. That's it. That's the only explanation you get. Man, I really feel like Boy Named Sue illustrates the perils of that particular like yep. naming methodology for children. <laughs> like if you name your kids something as a joke, uh-huh. they will find you and they will settle the score. Oh, yeah. Um, it's... And, you know, I can't, there are plenty of historical names you could give your children. Um, And certainly, if you have two black sons and you name them after Lincoln and Booth, like, as a joke, like, that's... I mean, you might as well just name them Cain and Abel if you really want them to Uh hate each other in Uh a specific way. And that's, you know, the play does have big Cain and Abel energy, if Uh you were to boil it down. Um, but it is it is specific in, in its riff on that. Um, I guess the thing to know about Link is that he is on. He's worried he's gonna lose his job, Andrew, because they're just gonna hire like a wax mannequin instead and let people sure. shoot a mannequin. Automation. Yeah, he's <laughs> call Andrew Yang about it. Um, <laughs> and Lincoln, Lincoln is very wary. Like the the previous guy who had the job was a white guy. He just like had the job and then he walked away. He walked away like he couldn't do it anymore or whatever. And they are paying Lincoln less than they would have paid that guy. He's very aware of that. Um, there's like 
part of Lincoln's arc in the play is Booth convincing him that he needs to be like more active when he gets shot. Like he needs to make a bigger show out of it so that sure. so that people will want him around. And whenever they rehearse that, like it's really awkward and weird. And it's all like it gets to a point where Lincoln is too good at like faking his death in a way that is <laughs> disturbing and people probably don't want to engage with it. Um, and I don't know the like the the thing about Booth is he is constantly trying to improve his station, but doesn't really lack any skills or know how to do it with, despite being the more like at least presenting like streetwise of the two of them. Though mm-hmm. even though Lincoln used to be such this like successful hustler, um. So Booth is the one talking to Link about like why you have to have a phone in your apartment so that when you meet girls, you can give them your phone number and they can call you to know that you don't have a wife, to know that you have a working phone, which means you can pay for it, and that you have (laughs) an address, which means you have somewhere to stay and you're not like sleeping in a car somewhere. And it's like written with this really good like late 90s, mid-aughts sitcom energy that I really like that particular (laughs) monologue has really good comic timing to it. Um, but it, that kind of is, a, there are a couple moments where Booth is the one who's like schooling Lincoln on something or at least trying to, um, before I get it in more into the plot, like what have you read about the reviews or of the production that maybe I can respond to? I mean, just the, the, the performances in the, in the play were very well regarded, um, this what what do I have here? I have from the New York Times review of the play just a a thing about the dynamic between the brothers. Sure. Um, this family portrait of two brothers specializing in the sidewalk scam called Three Card Monty is all about poses and pretenses, large and small, that somehow take you closer to the truth. That's a fair working definition of the theater, but not one that's been put into practice much of late. Oh, that's the Ben Brantley review where he starts yeah. the review by being like, "Plays are bad these days. Everything sucks." Yeah. <laughs> I did notice that where we, we, where he starts from a position of like ragging on the Lion King. Yeah. Tell you why this is good. (laughs) What a, okay. Ben Brantley. Sure. Okay. (laughs) He says a lot of lovely things about that play, about this play also. And he said plenty of lovely things about a lot of plays, but it is also his job to be curmudgeonly about the state of the, or it was his job. I think he stepped down recently, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that was the production. So when it was premiered, it premiered at the public um, in a production off-Broadway with uh, Jeffrey Wright as and Lincoln. And Don Cheadle, right? Don Cheadle as Booth. Uh, Jeffrey Wright's the guy from Westworld, among other stuff. I've seen him in a commercial recently. And Don Cheadle is um, known for being Don Cheadle. Yeah. <laughs> He's Don, he plays Don Cheadle regularly. Uh, and then when it transferred to Broadway, I guess, the production, uh, they, uh, most deaf was Booth. Um, and I think. He, and Wright stayed in as Lincoln, yes, right? Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. Um, and yeah, it's, it is a, it is definitely a two hander meant to like showcase this. Do you made a face? No, I was just I was just waiting for an opportunity to say same. Oh, <laughs> gross! It's it's a two hander meant to showcase the skills of the performers. Uh, yeah, same. Uh, okay, sure. Um, there was an interview I watched with her where she t- 
talked about like why she writes plays and she was basically like i'm not someone who writes plays to uh just to like make a political statement like i'm just here to to give characters a voice on stage and then she was also responding to criticism of like well why are you you know kind of a representation question of like you're writing black characters why are you writing about hustlers living on the street and not about like more quote-unquote respectable characters or something like that and she's like listen if i wrote those then you'd be like why aren't you keeping it real and writing about like quote-unquote yeah. real people and she's like that's a lo- that's a lose-lose game i'm not going to respond to that um, yeah no that's and, and that is um something i've been i watched the netflix show never have i ever which is a mini oh, sure. thing about like the one particular version of the Indian American experience and what I, what we ran into on um, appointment television when we talked about this never heard uh, (laughs) was that when, when shows that do not center like white people finally make it to like mainstream platforms, often it is sort of that there are way too high expectations placed on those shows because they are, like improving representation, but they have to represent very, very diverse communities within the, you know, the purview of like one family's point of view within like 10 episodes. And this is a version of the same thing, which is like, she is a black playwright, like first black woman to win the Pulitzer prize or at least first African-American woman. I don't know. uh, um, But, and, and so because she is one of the only african-american women in the space now it is incumbent upon her to represent all versions of that experience at least in the eyes of like interviewers and and reviewers and that's that's not fair and i i respect her i i reject the premise of the question (laughs) energy in that moment it was she she talked a lot about um her fascination with like lincoln in particular like Mm. lincoln as a as a person or as a mythic figure in american culture she says um uh, Lincoln is the closest thing we, we being in the United States, have to a mythic figure. In days of great Greek drama, they had Apollo and Medea and Oedipus, these larger-than-life figures that walked the earth and spake, uh, and they turned them into plays. Shakespeare had kings and queens that he fashioned into his stories. Lincoln, to me, is one of those. Hmm. Um, this yeah. is a subterranean thing I keep dipping into that I don't go into to solve. It just keeps pulling me into it. Yeah, I buy that. I So, yeah. to, to marry... Uh, some of her comments about the critique stuff. She's like, I wanted, I like that I wrote a play where two black actors get to work on stuff together. Like, and yeah. they will, and they will work through their own lives while getting paid for it, wherever this play gets done. And then on top of that, <clears throat> it is now two black actors uh, and the rest of the team working on the show, whoever they might be working through a, contemporary black man's relationship to Lincoln and to Booth and to American history Um, because of how like spare the play is. I think all of the symbolism in the names and in the very literal symbolism of making this man named Lincoln dress up as Lincoln. um, (laughs) It, it gets the weight that it, that you might imagine it, it does. And like to hear it out of context, it can feel maybe a little cheesy or a little, easy to boil down but like what's what makes it work as you're reading the play is like the play doesn't belabor that stuff the the large portions of the play are the two of them just like working out the fact that they are living together even though they haven't for a while 
and they're brothers with a history, but their lives are at inflection points. And so there's scenes where they're like eating food together because one of them brought home food. There's scenes where they are divvying up the money that they got, like the, the money that they have for the week, like the couple hundred bucks he brought home from his job for the week. They have to split it up for all the costs that they might have. Um, and so it is not just this like hundred page meditation on what it is for Lincoln to have existed. Right. Um, but you can't escape thinking about that in the back of your brain while all the other stuff is going. And I'm well, glad because, you- because she, because she decided that the play was going to be about two guys yes. whose dad had named them Lincoln and Booth. She is inviting that. A little bit. Yeah. So she's doing, and I'm glad you read a quote where she talks about Greek theater because then, so she is very deliberately setting up the dramatic irony and the foreshadowing of you going, okay, 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 okay. They're called <laughs> Lincoln and Booth. When is the Lincoln and Booth thing going to happen? Like mm-hmm. when is, when you know the whole play that that is possible um, it shouldn't be a spoiler to say that like that inherent promise does get fulfilled in in a real way um, because you can expect that it will. And the the arc of the play is such that it like it isn't just because they're reenacting some historical thing. It is just that these relationships exist where one guy, is trying to do one thing with his life. Another guy who has an intense relationship to that person feels that he is being taken advantage of or that life is treating him unfairly and he's going to take it out on, on person a, um, you can map that to a very like personal reading of a Lincoln and Booth in like an actual Lincoln and Booth interaction, but it Mm -hmm. is, it is a very intimate version of, of that relationship here. Um, I want to talk about the three card Monty in the way it works in the play um, because there's long, there's pages of them just doing the patter of three card Monty and like running the cards. And there's like a good portion of the play where Booth is keeping from Lincoln that he wants to get into it. Maybe because he's shy, maybe because he thinks he has to get good enough before he can prop Lincoln to be like, Hey, help me with this. Well, like maybe even, Having not read the play, I don't know if this is a part of it, but just from what you've said about their relationship, like maybe Lincoln as somebody who used to do this as, but has gotten out of it, maybe worried about being like judged a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he wants to and he wants to be good at it, too, before he's like, hey, I'm going to go off and do this. It, there is a period. How's of- that read on the page? How, like, what's that pattern read? Does, does it seem like a thing that would just like absolutely transparently work better in a performance or does it work reading it as as words well also? why don't we find out andrew i'm gonna no, i didn't mean i didn't mean to interrupt you i just wanted no, i want to no, talk no. more about final lady a little bit so um the play opens with booth and he's sitting at like a uh two milk crates with a cardboard like playing board on top of them that is their table um, at one point in the play, it gets trans- college students bookshelf. They call it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, at one point in the play, it gets transformed into like a dining table by putting a tablecloth over it. But that quickly gets transformed back into a three card money table. Um, and it opens with Booth doing it. And she says in in the stage directions, his moves and accompanying patter are for the most part studied and awkward. 
watch me close. Watch me close now. Who see the red card? Who see the red card? I see the red card. The red card is the winner. Pick the red card. You pick a winner. Pick a black card. You pick a loser. There's the loser. Yeah, there's the black card. There's the other <laughs> loser. And there's the red card, the winner. And like, it doesn't sound great. I'm it's, doing it, it is... badly also. No, it's but but even if you like that is not particularly engrossing as like busker uh, words, I guess. <laughs> no, and busker patter, I think, is the, the what I was going for. So but. let me read a little bit of of Lincoln, who is supposed to be way better at it. Oh, okay, that'll be all right. Um. Who see who see the black card? Who see the black card? You pick the red card. You pick a loser. You pick that red card. You pick a loser. You pick the black card. The deuce of spades. You pick a winner. Who sees the deuce of spades? The one who never see it fades. Watch me now as I throw the cards. Red losers. Black winner. Follow the deuce of spades. Chase the black deuce. Dark deuce will get you the win. Uh, and then he goes on from there. He's watch me now as I throw the cards. Watch me real close. So man, you know which card is the deuce of spades? Was he watching Link's Lightning Fast Express? Was he watching Link because he the best? So you sure, huh? Point it out first, then place your bet, and Link will show you your winner. And he goes on from there, and there's like no punctuation. He... <laughs> it's really rad. Well, and the the intermittent decision to rhyme, like it is not made to rhyme the entire time, but every once in a while, a couple lines rhyme in a way that catches your ear. That's the mark of a real of a real three card Monty master. Yes. Yeah, so there's based on my extremely limited experience <laughs> with the form. There's some. There's one that. Um, so in the second half of the play. Um, the the tension is that Lincoln has lost his job and he has actually kind of like fallen off the wagon, as it were, and he's going to get back into three-card moneying. Like he found the cards that Booth was, was practicing with. He was practicing on his own. He started getting a taste for it again. Later in the play, he does come in having like won 500 bucks being a three-card money hustler. Mm-hmm. Um, Just how... Are people still taken in yes. by this? I want to get saw, if I saw a game of Final Lady happening on the street, I wouldn't I wouldn't go anywhere near it. Or maybe I would I don't know, like maybe I would give like a dollar <laughs> just to do it and then leave. Every YouTube know. video I found on three card money, Andrew said, don't go near it at all. Um I found multiple YouTube videos that were magicians doing various three card tricks on me the viewer and never explaining them and then i just got mad that's frustrating um there was a short breakdown of like how people are positioned on the street they talk about this in the play as well that you have a crew you have lookouts you have a shill who is like you know standing next to the mark the person you're trying yeah no yeah 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 yeah. you have the uh if you're selling like magical tonic or like <laughs> yes yeah you've, you've always got the guy who you're related to who's like oh this worked for me yes and that's the person who is like betting when the mark walks up and that person's winning money and they're like oh yes. you gotta try it right. um they're also the person who eggs you on to bet more um there's a version <laughs> when you do it in the street where someone might tap on the dealer's shoulder so that the dealer looks away and then the shill bends one of the corners of the cards so that it's like of, of the red card of the lady. And then you have now tricked the mark into doing a con of their own. Right. And then the dealer is good enough to unbend that card and bend a different one. And so then when they lose their money, the mark is less likely to complain because they were also cheating. 
Hmm. Which is a cool psychological trick that you could play on people. If I were going to participate in this, it would be like when we got our when we got our palms read in New Orleans. Oh, I would yeah. be participating in street to art. know that I, would I was not, losing I would my not money. be trying to mm-hmm. win money in a game of chance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did watch a YouTube video called Three Card Money by J Magic 1987, and cool. he had some bad patter that I really enjoyed. Um, where he said, hey, diddle diddle, the queen is in the middle. When the money goes down, the lady can't be found. Up today, down tomorrow, rich man's luck is a poor man's sorrow. And my favorite one was, sometimes it creeps, sometimes it crawls, sometimes it's not where you think at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's very good. (laughs) Okay. You You can find a video that will tell you how the basic three card money card work is being done it's a pretty it's a pretty simple trick um i could i probably can't explain it in audio form so if you want to learn it you can and then i found a video that was like if you learn how to do this don't use it to make money that's illegal please (laughs) just a good disclaimer sure (laughs) um but back to our brother sorry that little diversion the three card money um it Booth is dealing with, I guess. Yeah, Booth is dealing with the fact that um, he's not getting any help from his brother. He's not getting any approval from his brother. His girlfriend Grace is kind of rejecting all of his advances. Um, he's lying about some of that to Lincoln, but he's kind of getting called out on it. And it boils over into Booth coming at the dejected Lincoln, being like, "Just let me, just do it. Just like." Let me learn how to do it. And they three-card mining with Booth first. Booth is bad. Then Booth is like, all right, Lincoln, you do it, and I'll try and pick the cards. And Booth gets it right a few times. And then the next night, or yeah, the next night, I think, um, they do it again, but the stakes are raised. Uh, Booth is like, you know why this isn't working? Like, you haven't let me put any money down on it. And he goes and he gets his inheritance from the closet, which is... 500 bucks that their mom left him. So the the backstory that you learn a little bit later in the play, both of their parents left them two years apart when they were younger. I think when they were 16 and 11. And their their mom left, and then two years later, their dad left, I think, is the order. I could have gotten that wrong. Um, it might be reversed. But their mom was regularly cheating on their father, the relationship was not great. And as Lincoln says at one point, like he thinks that they were just people who wanted different things from life and thought that a family and getting a house, even if it wasn't a particularly good one, because they just had some jobs and they were providing for their kids would be enough. And it wasn't. And so they left. And kind of this like low, kind of like a really interesting lower stakes, at least as portrayed, like deflated american dream thing um without it being like the overarching part of the play um and booth is like well they left you five hundred dollars and you spent it they left me five hundred dollars i've kept it here tied up in my in my closet in this pantyhose that mom put it in i'm gonna bet that against the five hundred dollars that you made hustling today and lo and behold lincoln does hustle booth out of the money oh boy because as Lincoln says, is the dealer's job is to always act like he doesn't want to do it to get the mark involved. <laughs> and the other thing that the dealer has to do is artfully let the mark win enough times 
until you can take them for the most possible. Um, and that goes very poorly for them. Booth kind of loses it and the, the Lincoln and Booth, you know, prophecy as it were winds up being fulfilled. Sure. Okay. Um, and it's really like the, the arc of the last two scenes of, of the six is, is really compelling. And, um, I think, as a portrait of characters who feel like the world, there's just not, there's no trust in the world. The world is is full of deceit and betrayal. Mm-hmm. Um, that the entire world is a con game, and we are just like, can you con it so that and you we don't are get merely conned? players? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a man and a man plays many parts in a con in his life. Um, like it's it's interesting um, as a riff on that. Um, and yeah, and just like the language is very good. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. It's about do it you just to, to, to close. Can we? I don't. I don't. I think you've probably read more plays for this show than I have. Yeah, probably. Like, when we talk about a play as like a written thing, in general, and 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 you know maybe specifically if if there's anything that comes to mind, but like in general. Are we doing the work justice? Are we doing justice to some version of the work? Like, how do you feel like those conversations usually go? Like, I've been, when we've tried to do nonfiction on the show, that's a genre that I find particularly, like, tricky, sticky. Mm, sure. And hard to really do justice to. How do, you, how do you feel about how plays go when we talk about them? Um, I feel like one play that I didn't do justice was like the Beggar's Opera because that got turned into the Three Penny Opera and it's like become a big musical thing and there was little way to talk about that effectively. Like I think we still had fun doing the episode or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was stuff in our Mr. Burns episode that is still like of value reading that play because it's riffing like it's meta textual pop culture referential stuff is going to have value whether or not you see it maybe won't have all of the value of of a full production but i think especially for the third act the costume yeah that's true and like whatever is going to do work they, they decided to make would would help with that i or think like help drive it home a little bit i'm glad that this was I'm going to pat myself on the back. I'm glad I decided to read this Susan Laurie Parks play for our podcast wow. because I'm being a real top dog right now. Excuse me. Um, <laughs> I I do feel like it is a play that had a lot of it succeeds on the page. There will definitely you know, it's not truly what it can be unless you see it. But from a spectacle perspective, um, there's not a lot missing from reading it like you're not um you're missing performance uh certainly but from a design perspective there isn't much i think you need that is required to make this play work this play is primarily a verbal um and of course watching someone do the three card stuff would be would really elevate the piece i'm sure um but I think you get a lot out of it just reading it. I don't. I don't think. I think it's one of those things where every play is a special unicorn, and every episode we do on a play is not going to be the same. Yeah. Um, I think this is a particularly good play for. Hey, I would just like to read something interesting. Sure. Um, 
and I think you will get a lot out of it. Whereas it sounds like, from what I've read about a lot of her other work, um, it can be bigger and grander in a way that will certainly not do its do itself justice on the, on the page. Well, and and sometimes to me it feels like we are we are talking about a a work absent some of the things that can make a a good play really really sing yeah. or a, oh, yeah. a mediocre play like better than tolerable. mediocre <laughs> <laughs> yeah like like i mean as we as we talked about when we were talking about the like the review of the of the play like one of the things that he talks about is the difference between um like the don Cheadle performance and the most deaf performance and yeah how sure things about like the second act in particular that really didn't work as well with Don Cheadle in that role suddenly did with most deaf because he was able to like create more drama and tension by the you know by dint of his of his acting. So I I always I always worry about giving that short shrift short shrift yeah. when we talk about plays. Which which is not to say we shouldn't talk about plays. It's just something I think about when we go beyond just like novels and short stories like our, our bread and butter i guess yeah i so there was an interview with with her about a production being done in jersey i don't know what the theater was where the the two actors is there is there theater in jersey <laughs> that's what everybody in new york says um uh they they were they had cast actual brothers in the show and not to say that like two not re- not brothers could could do an amazing job but she thought that it was just an interesting process because them being related and having a lot of personal history that could ping off of the the history in the play of the yeah, two characters sure. would just make for a different experience so there's there's certainly things that performers could bring to this play there's like a couple physical beats i think that new york times review calls out there is a shoplifting striptease as it were that booth does so booth the one skill that booth does have in spades no pun intended um is (laughs) is uh shoplifting and stealing things and he comes home one day and he has like he pulls out multiple bottles of like liquor from his like jacket and then Mm -hmm. takes off his jacket and is wearing like a full gorgeous like three-piece suit and he takes it off and there's another suit (laughs) underneath it (laughs) that he has also stolen um and he's just like throughout the play he he is boosting stuff and bringing it home but like that is like a moment that you read it on the page and you're like okay that's clever that's probably interesting but there's stuff that an actor will do that you know parks deliberately did not envision um yeah sure uh so you know the other thing that we are giving uh, short shrift to here, Andrew, is Lincoln impersonators. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with the Abr- the Association of Lincoln Presenters. Um, I had not. Uh, it had not come up in my research. No, they, they are an organization <laughs> of men and women dedicated to bringing Abraham and Mary Lo- Mary Lincoln to life. Um, mm. They go to fifteen. They go to like. There are 150 living Lincolns, it says, that they can bring to you. They are, quote, ready, willing, and Abe-L. Is it? <laughs> okay. Just want you to know. There's, I can't do anything about that <laughs> pun, so I'm just going to let it <laughs> sit there, I guess. Uh, there's also a guy named Michael Krebs who has a whole website about how good he is at being Lincoln, and he has like credits on multiple television shows that have done like 
episodes where someone needs to travel through time and kill Lincoln or something. It's, <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, so yeah, and when <laughs> I just wanted to put that, I thought it was funny. Um, <laughs> when you mentioned like I'm glad we do plays, like I wanted to make sure that we. Sometimes when I think about us doing them, it's mostly just to be like, yeah, people should go like be aware of this and read it if they're interested at all. Like they should know that it sure. exists. They should know that this mm-hmm. writer exists. Um, so I also want to give a shout out to other like black playwrights that are out there working right now. Um, yeah, do it. Yeah. Jeremy, Jeremy O'Harris, Antoinette Nwandu, Lynn Nottage, Terrell Alvin McCraney, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, and Jackie Sibley's Drury are just like six of a whole host of very talented working black playwrights right now. But those are six that I have heard of. And Terrell Alvin McCraney is the guy who wrote the play that got turned into Moonlight. Um, Jeremy O'Harris wrote Slave Play that was in New York recently. There's just a lot of folks that um, if you look at the history of uh theater by black playwrights here in America like a lot of folks look back to August Wilson um and then from Wilson you get here to Parks and then there's plenty of folks after them and plenty of folks before Wilson as well um so if folks are looking for other stuff to read I wanted to make sure we shared that what do you think Andrew are you still the top dog yes I <laughs> got you again crap <laughs> I guess send us emails about who you think is the top dog or the I underdog. Mean, only the, only an underdog would one would give any value to what other people thought. Only a top only a top dog would be uh like have the strength of self to read emails about whether or not he was the top dog. Hmm. Send him okay. in over to pot at gmail.com. Can't stop you now. Uh, or hit us up on social media, <laughs> Twitter and Facebook.com. Thanks to Bree, Holly, Madeline, Jennifer, Ebony, Katie, Evan, Yellen, Sutherland, and many more for telling people about the show. Thanks to Nick Larangis, who composed our theme song. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? Overduepodcast.com. We're on the internet. We yep. got links to the books that we have read and are going to read. If you want to read along with us, you click those and you can buy them from your local independent bookseller. Support them, support us, support yourself with some good book learning. Everybody wins. Uh, We also have links to Apple Podcasts, Google, our RSS feed. We are on Spotify and Stitcher and pretty much anywhere where you can download, find podcasts. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you have a moment. We really appreciate it and it helps us out. Uh, We have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Right now we are working through uh, 1001 Nights. As part of our Genie Babies Long Read project, we're a little behind on that right now because of just both uh, world things and personal things. But we are uh, we're gonna be hopping back on that train soon. So join us. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else? Next nope. week, I am going to be reading uh, what the Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro. Yeah, that's an author we've read before, right? Yeah, uh, Never Let Me Go was the book I read of his before. Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, cool. And then the week after that, you are going to read The Graduate by Charles Webb. That's right. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Anything else? That's it. No. Okay, everyone. (laughs) Until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. Bye.
That was a HeadGum Podcast.